There is a deep sense of unease in our rapidly changing world. We all know something has been lost, but we don't know why or where it all leads. Popular culture tells us it is all about me and that we should worship our creations rather than the creator. In politics, the end justifies the means. In relationships, love means self-satisfaction. In life, status and appearance are what count. In the church, confusion replaces clarity and conviction. Our faulty and distorted view of God is at the root of all our problems within and without. But what if we viewed God differently? What if we saw him the way he longed for us to see him? Instead of worshiping a comfortable golden calf of our own creation, we can worship a God that is holy, wise, and just. One whose faithfulness and goodness are matched by his power and sovereignty over all things. This is a God that can deliver us from evil and transform lives. This is a God worth worshiping. The way back, the path of hope, starts with knowing God for who he really is. We need to know the real God. So this week we, we continue our I Am series. We're about a month in at this point. And what I'm hoping that you, you, you're starting to see is that the attributes of God are interconnected. They're woven together to make one being. Because I think sometimes we get this silo version of God, where, where we have the silo of God's goodness, and then we have God's sovereignty here, and then we have his justice and his love and his mercy, and we, we tend to do that, and all of a sudden we actually end up having six different gods when we're meant to just have one. So what I'm hoping that you start to see is that when we look at God's goodness, it really doesn't help us if we don't have a God who's also sovereign. And the same is true if we have a God who's sovereign, we're in big trouble if we don't have a God that is good. So last week, uh, Matt taught us about God's goodness, and then later uh, that night, Las Vegas happened. Las Vegas was hit with the largest mass shooting that the America's ever had, and this week we get to talk about God's sovereignty. And I don't think this is an accident. I think that God knew that we would need to have these conversations because it's when evil and the chaos seems to surround us that we need to hold on to these, these two truths the most, that God is good and that God is in control. So we're going to be in Acts 17, uh, 24 through 28 this morning. And while you find that in your Bibles, uh, I want to share a story with you about the first time that I realized that God was sovereign in my life. So it was about hour 22 of a 24-hour drive back from South Texas to Pella, Iowa. It was about five or six years ago. I was a sophomore at Central College, and we, it was my first mission trip. I was a Christian less than a year, and we started to process the mission trip, started to ask questions, where did you see God? Um, what was, what's an image that you would want to share with your family from this mission trip? And somewhere along the, that line, I ended up telling my story of, of how I came to Christ, and it sounded a little bit like this. I randomly ended up at Central College. I randomly got assigned a Christian roommate. 
I randomly said yes to go to a Christian concert where I randomly said yes to Christ, and I randomly decided to go on a mission trip 24 hours away from where my college was. And I'll never forget this. Um, Heidi Schulte, who's one of the, the gentlest spirits that I've ever met, one of those people where um, she walks in the room and like all the tension is just gone. It just melts away. Just one of those kind spirits. And she just turned to me and said, Vince, it wasn't random. That was God. And, and for me, that meant a lot to me. That, that God was running ahead of me before I even <laughs> knew him so that I could know him. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about God's sovereignty and the idea that, that none of this is random, that my story's not random, it's not an accident, and neither is yours. And hopefully you're there already and you know that it's not an accident, it's not, a, it's not just random, but if you're not, hopefully this, this will help you um, see that this morning. Um, but before we, we get to Scripture, would you pray with me um, as we get into God's Word? God, we, we come to you and we confess that we don't get into your word enough to see who you really are. And God, we also just confess that when we do get into your word, sometimes it doesn't feel like anything is happening. We read it and we pat ourselves on the back, but we don't really see you or see who we are meant to be. God, would you just open our hearts up to you this morning so that we could see who you are in your scriptures. It's in your name we pray, amen. So this, before we get into our scripture, we need to get a little context. This uh, week during youth group, we actually talked about context and how if we're going to read scripture, we need to know what's going on in scripture and around scripture before we get to it. Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. It's a bit like reading a newspaper article without having the, the date on it or knowing anything else about it. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a document and that we don't really understand. So our context for our scripture this morning is that Paul, Apostle Paul, is in Athens. He's walking around Athens, and he's noticing all the temples to all the Greek gods. He sees the statues, he sees the altars, and he's about ready to preach the gospel. And so he's walking around town, getting a good lay of the land, and then he notices an altar that's peculiar. And it says, to the unknown God. Which, I mean, the Greeks were just trying to cover their bases, I assume, that they, like, well, we got all these statues, but just in case, we'll put one over here and we'll say, unknown God. And, and Paul goes, I know that God. That is the only God. That is Yahweh let me tell you about him. And so we get our passage this morning in Acts 17, verses 24 through 28. And this is what Paul says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out 
their appointed times and history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So last week, Matt talked about uh, this idea that when it comes to God's goodness, God says, all right, here's, here's the yard. Go play in it. Just don't go play in the street, just like we do with our own kids. And this week, we're going to talk a little bit about teenagers when it comes to God's sovereignty and a teenager mindset. So we've grown up a little bit in a week, so that should be encouraging to you. Um, the first thing that our passage tells us about God's sovereignty is that God is not needy. So if you're taking notes, go ahead and write that down. That's point number one. God is not needy. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in verses 24 and 25 when he says, God doesn't live in temples. He's not served by human hands as if he needed something. And, and Paul's making a very clear distinction here between the Greek gods and the true God. He's also pulling on a lot of scripture from the Old Testament. So we're going to run through uh, three scriptures, and then I'm going to tell you a story out of scripture, so four in total. So we're going to have to hold on. Our first one is going to be in Psalm 135, 15 through 17. And so if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, don't get frustrated if I move on before you actually find it. It's completely fine. I've practiced, so I know where it's at. Um, so Psalm 135:15 says this. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. Eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. And then Habakkuk is a book you probably are wondering, well how's that spelled? There's a total of 3 Ks in it. Habakkuk is towards the New Testament, and Habakkuk says something similar to the psalmist. So in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 18, Habakkuk says this about idols. Of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman, or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation, he who makes idols that cannot speak. And then Last passage that we're going to turn to is Isaiah. And it's Isaiah 44. And Isaiah, he's a prophet, and so you know he's not going to hold back. And don't let anybody ever tell you that the Bible's not hilarious, that there's not humor in the Bible, because Isaiah, he, he, in this passage, he is hilarious if you know what's going on. So Isaiah is talking about carpenters and stonemasons, and, and how they craft idols. And so in Isaiah 44, verse 14 through 17, he says this, and it, it's hilarious. He says, he cut down cedars, or perhaps cypress, or oak. He, he let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. See, Isaiah is already like, he's covered all of the wood, like hardwoods, softwoods, he's Maybe it was an oak, maybe it was a cypress, maybe it was a pine. I don't know. It doesn't really matter to Isaiah. 
It is used for, as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships it. So the, the images here, you got a big old lumberjack craftsman. He's walking into the woods and he's looking around. Maybe a cypress, maybe an oak, maybe a pine, because pine's a little softer. Maybe I can actually work that one. He cuts down a tree. He starts a fire from that tree. And then from the same tree, he makes an idol. And one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And I love telling this story because when I tell the kids this story, it means we get to sing a song and we get to dance crazy. But it's 1 Samuel chapter 5, and the Philistines have gone to war against the Israelites, and they just stole the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Old Testament, the Ark of the Covenant was a sign of God's presence. So if they had the Ark of the Covenant, they said, good, we're, we're going to win, let's go out to war. Well, they go out to war, they lose the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they put it in their temple right next to the statue of their god, Dagon. So the first night comes and Dagon, his statue, falls on his face, almost as if to worship, right? And so the priests come in the next morning, they go, oh, that's not good. We need to pick up, pick up Dagon. So they, they pick him up and then the next night comes and Dagon falls again. Only this time, his hands break off and his head breaks off. Well, after that time, in the morning, the Philistines kind of get the idea they probably shouldn't mess with God or God's people, so they end up picking up the ark, and they send it back to the Israelites. And Paul's making this distinction. He's pulling on all of those stories, and Paul here is saying, that's not my God. My God doesn't need me to pick him up to glue his head back on or glue his hands back on. My God doesn't need to live in a temple. That's not my God. And he's saying this because his God is self-existent, exists outside of time and space. His God is good, and his God is sovereign. And we see, our, we see God's utter lack of need of us in Job, the story of Job. It, it's one of the one of the most depressing stories in Scripture. Um, read Lamentations, and then we can talk about, we can all vote on what is the most depressing book in the Bible. But Job, God listens to Job and his friends for 37 chapters. They question God's goodness. They question his fairness, his justice, his mercy. They question God over and over and over again. And then, and finally, in chapter 38, God speaks. He, God doesn't just speak, but he launches into one of the most powerful questioning questions in the Bible. Have you ever, like, growing up, did you ever question your parents a lot? And then all of a sudden, it was like, okay, you think you're so smart. Well, let me ask you some questions. And then it just, whoa. Maybe you've done that with, yeah, good timing. Um, 
Maybe you've done that with your own kids where they were getting real snarky one day, and I was like, okay, you think you're so smart. You think since you're a teenager and you've got your first job, you think you're so smart, here it comes. Um, and God kind of launches into something that is amazing. So in verse 2 of 38, God starts to speak. And here's what he says. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. If, if you're ever having a conversation with God and God says, brace yourself like a man, you should probably brace yourself like a man <laughs> and be really scared about what's about to happen. So he says, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched out a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? And, and this goes on and on and on. And, and the whole point of this is that God's saying, I don't need you, Joe, but I want you. And I think for, for me, that, that's, that's a bigger miracle than, than having a God that's like, Vince, please, please, I need you. And having a God that says, I don't need you, but I want you. I think that, that's huge for me because I don't have any other relationship in my life that's like that. If you think about your own life, you don't have any other relationship that's like that. There are a lot of people that love you and are also dependent on you. Um, Think about tax time. Teenagers, the teenager mindset with this particular point in Scripture is that my parents need me more than I need them. And anybody that's gone off to college has thought that, right? I, I remember when I went off to college, my parents, I mean, we we're close, but I went to college and go, ah, oh, it's going to be so nice to get away, and I'm not going to come back. And it's going to be really hard on my mom. She's going to really miss me. And then it was like a week and a half in. We, went, we were all walking to movie on the wall. And I was starting to feel it. Like, oh, I miss my mom. Oh, I'm really all alone. And there's like thousands of strangers around me. And I just sent a simple text. Love you, mom. Put the phone back in my pocket, wiped the tear, and went to the movie. Um, but we see in this that, that God is not needy, that God's not like our children. And, and so when it comes to tax time, there's always that line that says dependence, right? And, and you put down the number of dependents in your household, and you claim your children. No matter how smart they are as teenagers, no matter how much money they're making at Fairway or McDonald's, you claim them as a dependent. And here's the thing, God has never and will never be put as a dependent on anyone's taxes. That's our first point, is God is not needy. Our second, the second thing we need to know about God's sovereignty, and I think this is the one where a lot of us, um, we want to resist. This is the point where we, we look at Las Vegas and we start to say, all right, where are you at? All right? And... and this point is God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. So 
you guys want to say that with me because that's a mouthful, okay? Let's go ahead and do that. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. So the natural question with God's sovereignty when we're talking about God's control of the universe is, are we just puppets to God? Does, does God just kind of like pull strings and, and move us around? Like, I, I remember growing up and I had little green plastic army men. And those were, I would spend hours setting them up. And then I would take marbles and just like, like, it was chaos. But I think our question is, are we like that with God? Does God just kind of set us up into places and then just shoot marbles at us to see what happens? Uh, and we, we need to understand God's free, God, the free will that God has. So I'm going to need slide number one. All right, so this is how we normally see free will in, in our world, is that free will is this pie, and that's all the free will that there is, which is kind of ironic that freedom would be limited to just a circle, but whatever. So we have this pie, and then God gets pretty much the majority of it, and then we get a little slice of it. But the problem with this is, one, we've just limited God's freedom. God, God's limited in this, this graph. And also, we, start, we actually hamper and limit God's freedom in this. And so we, God can't have the full circle because we're part of the circle. And what happens here is what happened in the garden is we start to wrestle with God and say, I want a little bit more pie, so I'm going to try to push beyond my boundaries. And we get a, a worldview that doesn't really mesh with what Scripture says. And so second slide for us this morning is this one. So we see that God is outside of the circle. God has unlimited freedom, and we have limited free will. So I need a volunteer, someone who wants to volunteer. Mark, thank you for volunteering. <laughs> it's really easy. You have to answer one question. Nope, just stay right there. How tall are you? Six one and a half, probably six one. We all know you lie. <laughs> um, Mark, why aren't you seven foot? There we go. Limited freedom. We have Mark can choose to eat fried chicken all he wants, but he can't choose to be seven feet tall. We are limited in the scope and scale of our freedom, and we don't have to necessarily know how this interplay works out, but we just know that in Scripture, this is true. So we don't need the, the slide anymore, so we just go back to black screen so I'm not distracted. Um, and we think of freedom kind of as that pie graph, and we see um, in our last point that God's not needy. Well, if God's not needy, then God has to be completely free. And so we can't hinder or hamper God's freedom, and we can't take away his quantity of freedom or his quality of freedom. And we see this in part in verse 26 of our passage this morning, Acts 17. So, verse 26 of Acts 17 says this, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. 
So here we get a pretty clear picture that, that God is setting up history. He's putting nations and setting their boundaries. He's kind of working on the macro level, but God does not force me to eat fried chicken and die at 45. That, that's my choice, right? So we are in control of a lot of things in our lives, and yet God has ultimate control, and these work in the same, at the same time. One way for us to, to see this in Scripture is actually in the story of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king in ancient Israel. Um, the story is in 2 Kings, verse 20. We're going to be doing a lot of Scripture this morning, so just hang in there with me. So 2 Kings, chapter 20, verses 5 through 7. So what happens is Hezekiah gets sick, deathly sick, and the, God comes to Isaiah and says, hey, Hezekiah is going to die. He, he's not going to recover. He's just going to die. His time's up. So Isaiah says, well, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I should probably go tell the king that he's going to die. So he goes to King Hezekiah and he says, hey, you're not going to recover. You're going to die. Naturally, what Hezekiah does, like most teenage girls, except he was a king and was man, he, when given bad news, he rolled, the scripture actually says this, he rolled over in his bed, faced the wall, cried, and prayed to God. Um, and, and, and so God hears him. If you, if you have ever questioned whether or not your prayers actually do something, this is a story where you can say, God said he was going to die. Hezekiah prayed. God comes back and says, you're going to live for 15 more years. So in verse 5, this is what happens. Isaiah is like, told him the news. Hezekiah turns to the wall, starts crying. Isaiah is not even out of the, he's not even out of the building yet. And God speaks to Isaiah. So before Isaiah had left the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and the city from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my name's sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs, they did so and applied it to his boils, and he recovered. So in this story, we get God's declaration, you're going to live for 15 more years, and then all of a sudden Isaiah says, hey, let's prepare a paste, that's what a poultice is, let's prepare a paste and put it on his boils, and he'll recover. So we get this weird thing where God's sovereignty and our responsibility intersect in this story, where God has already proclaimed something, and yet there's still something for us to do in it. Um, I want you to think about, maybe boils doesn't make a lot of sense for you, why somebody would die from boils. Uh, think about the people that we know that have cancer. We pray for healing for them, but we don't say, you know what, we prayed to God, don't go to the hospital to get chemo. Don't go get radiation. Don't, don't go get it removed because God's just going to do it. We don't do that, because we have a role to play in this. God's sovereignty and our responsibility intersect. So if you're struggling with this point, and you're a Christian, there's two questions that we need to answer. 
And the first question is, did God have an eternal plan to send his son to save us? And the second question is, are we responsible for crucifying Jesus? And the answer to both of those questions is clearly yes. And, and scripture actually bears that out. Peter, in Acts 2, this is after the Holy Spirit's come down and everybody starts speaking different languages and some wise guy comes out and says, they're drunk. And Peter rightly says, it's nine in the morning. We're not drunk yet. So, <laughs> Peter says in verse 22 through 23, he says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. That wasn't part of that we were supposed to read. I just like that part of the story. And so we see that God has a deliberate plan, and at the same time, Peter says, you're responsible for crucifying his son. So the teenager attitude in this, for this point is that God is ruining our lives. If you've ever had a teenager, and it usually happens right before a door slams, you're ruining my life! <laughs> After a big argument, um, I never did that with my parents, but I watched my sister do that with my parents. Um, and my brother was normally walking down the driveway after those arguments. Um, but the teenager attitude here is, well, God, I'm not actually responsible for my sin. If, if you really loved me, you'd just snap your fingers, and I would not I not want to look at that anymore. I wouldn't want to drink that anymore. I wouldn't want to do this, that, or the other thing. And, and the attitude is, well, God, you're ruining my life. I'm not responsible. But let me tell you this. Um, a lack of responsibility will tear a family apart. It's hard to have a relationship with someone who refuses to take ownership of their own life. Um, this has happened in my own family. Um, and uh, a witness's testimony does not negate our responsibility for our sin, our crime, any area in our life. And the point, the second point is that God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. Okay, so our third point is God wastes nothing. God wastes nothing, all right? And... Often people will say, well, God can't be in control because bad stuff happens, because Las Vegas happens, because Irma happens, because this, that, or the other thing happens. But let me tell you, if you've tracked through the first two points that God's not needy and that his sovereignty does not negate our responsibility, you're kind of stuck. Like, you either have to go back in time and refuse the rest of the sermon or just come along with me on this one. See how I kind of crafted that whole thing. All right. So we, let's look at one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, Romans 8. And in this, past, in this chapter, we get 
um, an answer to, well, if God's in control, then why does bad stuff happen? So in 8, 8 18, 20 through 21. Let me read that for you. Paul, who our passage is based on this morning, who's in Athens, he writes this, and he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration by, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom, brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. So in this passage, we see that creation didn't choose hurricanes, wildfires, and floods. We see that it was literally put into slavery by humanity. Humanity makes a choice to rebel against God, and that sends shockwaves throughout all creation. But here's, here's the kicker, and we, all, we see this in this passage. In Jesus, we have been set free from that brokenness and that decay and that disease. And creation will share in that with us one day. Paul says creation is eagerly waiting. And, and in other places in this passage, Paul says it has like birth pains. I don't know what that's like, but it it's got to suck. And um, so creation is hurting, groaning in labor for freedom from death and decay. And later on, we get to see Christians, one of Christians' favorite verses, you'll see this on, on t-shirts, you'll see this like said all the time, but I'm going to add a couple of verses in front of it because I think it helps us actually understand what it means. So just a little bit farther down in uh, Romans 8, uh, we're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to go through 28. So, here we go. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with, God, with the will of God. And here's one of our favorite verses in all scripture. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So we get this verse really twisted because we go, well, God, God works all things for the good of those who love him. Obviously, nothing bad should ever happen in my life. And, and there are preachers that will say, well, you know, if something bad's going on, obviously, you don't love God enough. And all I have to say is no, no, no. No a thousand times. Okay? And put that scripture back in its context, to be honest. It was just in verse 18 that we saw Paul, who none of us would question if he loved God. Paul saying, I consider the sufferings that I have now nothing compared to the glory to come. And, and so when we just take scripture out of context, it's really easy to not understand it. And so Paul is saying, hey, the good and the bad, God's going to work out for our ultimate good. And what is the ultimate good is that we get to know God, 
We get to know him more deeply throughout our lives. And then one day, we get to stand before him 100% of who we were supposed to be from the beginning. In verse 27 of Acts 17, our passage for this morning, we're told that God has put us in this place, this moment of history, for the exact same reasons he put Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, and Mary in their place where they were at. And that's so that we would seek God and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far. See, God doesn't send the cancer, the car crash, the hurricane, or the mass shooter. He doesn't send them. But God will not let sin and brokenness have the last word. It's not going to let the sin and brokenness have the last word. God will not waste a single moment of your life or your circumstances because it's too important. One of my professors at seminary wrote a book uh, in the ma- aftermath of being diagnosed with incurable cancer. Uh, he's like 40-something. He's got two little kids. And um, it's an incredibly powerful book. Uh, I, would, I would recommend it for anyone who's in a season of deep pain or deep chaos, just feels like there's nothing going right in your life. I would recommend this book. And, and in his book, Rejoicing in Lament, Wrestling with Incurable Cancer and Life in Christ, uh, my professor J. Todd Billings writes this. The church is the church as a creature of God's word. A creature that finds life outside of itself, that does not have faith in faith so much as faith in the God of covenant promise made known in Christ. From one standpoint, the church is a gathering of sinners who are both old and young, healthy and sick, growing and dying. But by, the prom- by God's promise, the church is also people who move through birth, health, dying, and even death. on a journey to resurrection because they belong to Christ. For the end of the story of God and of the church is not death, but resurrection. And then he quotes 1 Corinthians. Christ has been raised from the dead and defeated death in the resurrection. So this morning, we've just been dealing with this idea of God's sovereignty. God's not needy. God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. And God's not going to waste a single moment of your life. And and for some of us, we I don't know where everyone is, but the idea that God's not needy is really foreign to some of us. And the idea that I have some responsibility over this life that I've been given is something that we run away from. Or if you have a deep pain, a deep hurt, it can be hard to say, God didn't send it, but he didn't waste it either. He used it for his glory. I know that evil surrounds us. I know that the seemingly random chaos chokes our hearts. Um, and there's a song called Farther Along. It's 100 years old now, um, and it has many different versions and 
has been covered by a lot of different artists. Um, one of them is Brad Paisley. Um, but the version that I know uh, ends this way. And one day, when the sky rolls back on us, some rejoice and the others fuss. Because every knee must bow and tongue confess that the Son of God is forever blessed. His is the kingdom, we're the guest. So put your voice up to the test. Sing, Lord, come soon. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand this all by and by. Would you pray with me? God, this is one of those things where we can know it, we can read it, we can understand it, and sometimes it still just doesn't make sense. Sometimes we can know that you're in control, but everything else around us says you're not whether it's a hurricane or a tornado or a flood or a mass shooting. It just seems like there's no reason for any of it. God, would you just help us this morning cling on to your goodness and cling on to your sovereignty, knowing that we don't necessarily have to understand what you're doing in all of this mess, but help us to know that you are doing something, that you're good, and ultimately, we're going to be okay. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this time, we're going to have the praise team and the ushers come up. We're going to take our offering this morning. Um, but I want to give you three ways to respond. Um, I'm sure there's multiple ways, more than just three ways to respond, but three ways that uh, we can respond positively um, to God's sovereignty. Uh, the first thing is, I'm sure all of us have needy gods, needy idols in our lives. We need to go to God and, and confess those. Let's say, God, I have these needy gods, I have these needy idols in my life, and pray that God would help you start to work those out of your life. For some of us, it'll be money, that we treat that like a god, and it's needy, right? You always got to keep feeding the money. You always got to keep feeding the mortgage and feeding this, that, or the other thing. Another way that we can respond is that we can start and ask some people that are really close to us, people that we're not afraid to be honest with us, and say, is there an area of my life where I've run away from, my, run away from responsibility? That's one way to respond to, to that. Another way to respond in that same vein is, are there sins in your life that you're not even, not even worried about? It's time to take responsibility for those and take those to the cross. And the last way to respond is, there are people in our community, and some of you are here this morning, that have had deep personal tragedies. And you're still working through that. And I would just say that we, as a church, should be praying for people that are in the midst of that season 
and pray that someday they could come to understand that God didn't waste that moment, that God was using it for something bigger than what it was. And if you're in the middle of that tragedy, uh, pray that you would start to understand what God's doing in all of that. So we're going to take our offering. If you're visiting with us this morning, you're under no obligation to give. If you're visiting, actually, you rip off the bottom of your bulletin with all your information on it and put that in. That can be your offering this morning. Uh, we take an offering to fund the ministries of the church, and the ministries of the church are all about the gospel so that we can go out and, and work on homes for people that, that don't have money to, to work on them. Um, so would you pray with me for our offering this morning? God, we, we need your help to respond. We don't want this just to be a Sunday where we come and we hear some words and we say, oh, that was nice. Um, but God, I just pray that this would start to sink in, that you are sovereign, that you're in control. So however we need to respond, I pray that your spirit would come and you would prompt our hearts. And God, I just pray that you would multiply this offering, that you would make it go farther than we think it can, so that we can do more for your kingdom, we can do more for the people that need it. So God, we just ask that you would come in this time and that you would bless this offering. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.